Thank you, Scott. Well, good morning, church. As Scott said, my name is Dave. Deb and I have been hanging out at Centennial for about two years, and we actually officially joined like six months ago. And uh, I got to get a little situated here. Um, the prophet of the morning is the prophet Haggai. And uh, so if you want to turn there in, um, in your Old Testament, if you can find it, it's close to the back. Um, we're getting toward the, you know, we're kind of leaping ahead a little bit to, uh, uh, to the post-exilic prophets. Uh, this is a tiny book, but it's jam-packed with truths that I think are timeless and important, uh, considering uh, where we live in current day and times. Um, uh, let's establish a bit of historical context, if you will. Uh, we fast-forwarded about 100 years from where we were last week. Um, you will remember that last week, uh, the Babylonian Empire on the rise has overtaken the Assyrian Empire. And as the prophet Nahum had prophesied, they have, they have destroyed the city of Nineveh, according to the word of God. And then uh, uh, that happened around, uh, around 5, around 625. Are we going to do this again? We're, we're convinced we've got spiritual warfare going on here. Yeah, yeah. We, we practiced this. We got the mic and we, we walked around and, and uh, I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. Yeah, okay. Is that better? That's a lot better for me. That's uh, pretty distracting. I don't know what, what that is like for you. Um, but Babylon, the, the empire of the Babylonians has overtaken the Assyrians. And in, in, uh, in the year of, uh, of 612, they, um, they, wipe out the, they, they finish wiping out the army of Assyria at, in the Battle of Carchemish. And Israel, uh, is, or the southern kingdom of Judah, is free uh, from oppression for about 25 years. And, uh, and Nahum had kind of promised that. But then around 587, the Babylonians show up on the doorstep and they surround Jerusalem. And within a year, uh, they have totally leveled the city of Jerusalem. They have decimated the city. They have taken women and children, any able-bodied survivor, men of the city into captivity into Babylon. And we have a couple of major prophets that were a part of that era. Jeremiah was there in the fall of Jerusalem uh, and, uh, and Daniel becomes the prophet, a major prophet of the exile and also Ezekiel. Um, and, and, uh, but, so we've kind of jumped over those major prophets and now, we're, now we've come to that point in which the, 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 uh, the city of Jerusalem has been, has been destroyed. It's been leveled by the Babylonians. And that includes in the year 586 B.C. the temple that was in the center of the city. And that was a world-renowned temple, wasn't it? Why? Because it had been built by Solomon almost 500 years earlier. And it had been built, you know, it had been planned carefully by King David himself, the most important king, you know, in, in the history of all of Israel. 
And then those plans had been carefully carried out as instructed by God, by Solomon after the death of David. And it was a glorious, a majestic, beautiful, uh, world-renowned building, temple. And the Babylonians literally leveled it and took everything from it, from its treasury, and all the gold and silver, all the vessels from that temple went to Babylon. So what does that mean to Israel? When the Babylonians destroyed the temple, it essentially meant in the heart of the Jews that they were separated from their God. There was no longer a place for them to meet with God, to find the presence of God. Now you keep in mind that this predates the new covenant that where we that we enjoy under Christ, right? Where we now know that our body, our bodies become the temple of the living God somehow indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And now that the Holy Spirit is in us, then we can find ourselves, we can be in the presence of God anytime we so desire. But prior to Christ's atoning work, the dwelling place of God amongst his people had been the temple. And so about 50 years pass under Babylonian rule and Cyrus the Persian, who becomes the leader of the Medo-Persian Empire, invades Babylon. And you may remember the story because it's in Daniel that on Belshazzar's birthday, he decided to get all the golden vessels that were the treasures of the temple and to bring those in and serve food for all of his Babylonian friends in a banquet using those things that were holy to God. And there was handwriting on the wall. Remember? And they went and got Daniel, and Daniel read the handwriting to Belshazzar. Belshazzar, tonight God will take, will require, will judge your life. And that very night, the Medo-Persian army found a, 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 a secret entrance, a back entrance. Perhaps they bribed someone, but they found, a, they found a way to breach to get inside the city, and they took Babylon without a fight. The king woke up. And his city had been seized by Cyrus the Persian. The first thing Cyrus did was decree that the Jews could and should go back to their homeland and rebuild their homeland and even rebuild their temple. And so they went back, 50,000 of them, and God told them that the first thing that they needed to do, their first priority was to rebuild the temple, rebuild its walls, its five pillars, and, you know, on the entrance of the holy place, the reestablish the rooms that would mirror the original. And then he said, I will come and dwell in your midst and reestablish my presence with you. And when the book of Haggai opens, it's been 18 years. 
They've been back 18 years. A foundation has been laid and parts of two walls, two walls, that's all. Life just got too hard. And the project was abandoned and now nearly two decades have passed. But it hasn't gotten any easier for Judah. The people are wondering why they're not content. Even being back in their homeland, they don't feel blessed. Their crops are failing again and again. Their hopes are fading. Their dreams have been dashed to pieces. And then God says, let's talk. Let's talk. So let's pray and let's ask him to talk to us, okay? Can we just pause? I'd like for you just in your heart, just say, Lord, would you speak to me this morning? Do you have something you want to say to me this morning? Would you be willing to pray that with me? So, Father, as we come before you, opening this prophet, this Haggai, this prophet that you sent years ago to speak to your people, we know there are words applicable to our lives, and we pray, Father, that you would speak to us. Let the words of my mouth, as the psalmist as the psalmist said, let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be acceptable, O Lord, in your sight, my Lord and my Redeemer. Amen. Ian Gray studied success. He spent his life's work studying success. He studied CEOs, entrepreneurs, athletes like Tom Brady, you know, Inventors, leaders of great movements like Martin Martin Luther King and others. He studied their lifestyle. He studied their decision-making process, their habits. Everything that he saw that might contribute to their success, he wanted to know. And he began to write about that topic. His latest book is called the new common denominator of success. Laws of leadership, colon laws of leadership. What he looked for was what are the commonalities between successful entrepreneurs and leaders, business people, athletes? What, what is the, are there common denominators? What he found was not that they were well-educated, that they went to the best schools. It was not that they had high IQs. It was not that they had family wealth like some people that set them up for some kind of financial success. Later, they were not well capitalized. Um, they did not have, they were not geniuses when it came to business or business acumen. Um, they were not masters at anticipating trends and staying out in front of trends. He found two things, two commonalities for success. Number one, self-awareness. Number two, they put first things first. They put first things first. They understood themselves, and they were masters of prioritization. When you get the most critical priorities in place and you operate out of those, when you get what's primary, then everything else becomes secondary. 
Do you see it? And these successful people, he said, didn't just execute early on based on a set of priorities, but they had the discipline to maintain and stay the course of those priorities to keep putting first things first again and again and again. Here's a quote from his book. The successful person has a habit of doing those things that failures don't like to do. And they don't like doing them either, necessarily. But their dislike is subordinated to the strength of their purpose. And so they put first things first. Ah, we're getting right into chapter one, aren't we? Let's read the first two verses. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of God. Now, I want you to first thing, note a specific date. You remember with most of the prophets in the Old Testament, you're guessing. You are not guessing with, with Haggai, nor with his contemporary Zephaniah. These two guys dated specifically, historically, in the historical record, the date in which God spoke to them in the second year of Darius the king in the sixth month on the first day of the month, the first of the month. This would have been for us, like latter part of September, 520 BC, if you will. Haggai, we don't know much about him, the person. He was just a Jew from the exile, wasn't he? But his name means my feast. And so the theory of scholars is, is he was probably born on a national holiday, on a feast day. And thus he got the name Haggai. Right? Now, there's a couple of keys to understanding this little book. One of them is his title for God in the book. His title for God. But the other is the emphasis upon the Word of God. Thus says, saith the Lord of hosts. Thus saith the Lord. And in the original Hebrew, it's the it's the the intimate personal name of God, Yahweh. Though the Jew would never pronounce that, they would always they would always enter, you know, uh, in, they would always interject the name Adonai for Lord because they didn't want to take his name in vain. So if they saw Yahweh in the text, they would read it as Adonai. So it comes out here, Lord of hosts, but it's really Yahweh. It's really the, you know, the, the, the personal name of God. And I, I think it's in there because I think it, this was delivered by the hand of Haggai. It was, he wrote this exactly what God had written, had given him down, and he handed it to them for them to read for themselves. 
So in this book where there are two chapters and only 38 verses, 28 times it says the voice of God, thus saith the Lord, the word of the Lord. You know, in, in some reference, it references the word of God, this being the actual voice, word, you know, saying of God 28 times in 38 verses. You, you can't read this book and not see that. Right? And then watch out for his title for God. Okay? Because he emphasizes the power and the authority of God. God emphasizes that to his own people. Because it's God speaking here. I am the Lord Almighty. And literally, it is the word Lord of hosts. He is the God of angel armies, if you will. He is the commander and chief of the host of heaven. We all were amused recently when President Trump canceled an airplane for Pelosi because she was going to get a military plane and fly to Iraq, and he just canceled it. By what authority? Well, he's the commander in chief of all the military. So he can do that if he wants to. But God is saying, I am the commander-in-chief of all of the armies of heaven. And like Isaiah said, the nations are just a drop in the bucket to me. Because I have, I command all of heaven, the armies of heaven. And so you find that in 14 times in that title, the Lord of hosts in Haggai. The recipients are identified here in the first verses. One of them is Zerubbabel, who was, by, who was appointed by the king of the Medo-Persians, by Cyrus, to be the governor. His name means Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. It means seed of Babel, seed of Babylon. He was born in Babylonian captivity. He had never seen the homeland before. He went there as governor. All new to him, right? Zerubbabel. And then there was Joshua. Now, we need one other thing about Zerubbabel you need to know. He had been identified as the one who would be next in line in the ancestry of King David. See, he was actually in the direct ancestry of David. It's interesting that a Medo-Persian king would send someone back to be governor of a territory that he's in control of that actually might develop an ambition to be a king after his great-great-great-great-grandfather. Right? And then Joshua, who was appointed as the high priest, actually coming from the family of, uh, that he came from, Jehozadak, was in direct, a direct descendant to the first of the Levitical priests, Aaron. So you can see that this Medo-Persian king Cyrus not only supported the reestablishment of the homeland, but he was supporting the reestablishment of the temple and saying, go, build your temple, and as you worship your God, pray for me. He was not threatened by them. And then, of course, this word was delivered to all of the people. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, these people. Now, notice that. He didn't say my people. He, 
I think he's a little peeved. <laughs> you know? It's kind of like um, if I come home and my dog has done something in the house that Deb doesn't like, she says, you know, your dog suddenly there's not joint ownership. You know, it's your dog, right? And, 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 and he says, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Verse 3, and then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While the house, while, while this house lies in ruins. Now the tone here is not condemnation and judgment. It sounds like God is sort of the compassionate counselor at this point. I mean, these people have gone back, 50,000 of them, to re-inhabit a land that has been left fallow for decades. No one has farmed it. The city has, has been leveled and destroyed. And there's just nothing to go back to. And it's going to be hardship from day one. And God's not coming at them with a voice of judgment and reckoning. He comes sort of as a compassionate counselor. The pedagogy here, the method is asking questions in the text. And so every time God speaks, he asks a question or two. There's seven questions, and seven, of course, is the perfect number in Hebrew numerology. Uh, but there's not like poetry here. It's just, it's a God who's just reasoning with his, with this people, his people. He's making us think. Any of you ever been involved in a 12-step program? You know, I have at our former church, we had a 12-step program that we did on Monday nights. And, uh, and uh, so if you're a counselor or you're a sponsor in a 12-step pro program, um, you know the definition of insanity, right? What's the definition of insanity? Thank you, Jason. Doing the same thing over and over, but expecting a different result. And that's what the Judeans have been doing for 18 years. Have they not? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And so God comes with questions as a counselor. And, uh, and it's kind of like the counselor who says, well, how's that working for you? You talk a little more and says, well, how's that working for you? That's kind of Haggai in a nutshell. You know, God's saying to his people, look, I, I love you, but how's that working for you? Yeah. It's questions. And we don't like to be made to think, do we? Yeah, as a pastor, many, many times people would, you know, walk out after service and shake my hand and said, well, you really gave us something to think about, preacher. And it was almost a negative comment, like we didn't come here to think, <laughs> you, know, you know, but God is making them think by asking 
questions. And I like what Mike Iaconelli says in, in a, there's a book called Dangerous Wonder. He says, the role of a preacher is not to give us all the answers. The role of great preaching is to keep the really important questions alive. Amen. I think that's what God's doing here. How's that working for you? So, you people are hanging out in paneled houses. You got your place all decorated up like Chip and Joanne have suggested. You know, you got the shiplap, you know, and the farmhouse sink. Wow! And my house lies in ruins? You think you got your priorities in the right place here? Consider your ways. You'll say it twice. That's a very important statement. Consider your ways. I looked it up in the original Hebrew. You know what the literal Hebrew is? Lay your heart on the road. Lay your heart on the path. Give careful thought to where your heart is leading you. It's a matter of the heart. Isn't it? Think long and hard about where you've been and where you're headed with your heart. Verse 6, you've sown much, you've harvested little. You eat, you never have enough. You drink, you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but, you're, but no one is warm. He who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, consider your ways. Take your heart out and lay it on the path. Go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. For you looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house, his own concerns. They are missing priority one. Hmm. How are you doing on priority one? Just trying to make you think. How you doing, really? I think it's great that Centennial's mission statement is what? Centering lives on Jesus Christ. Putting Christ in the center. It's about making Christ in our relationship with him priority number one. Numero uno. I would only change one thing. 
I'm being honest. I would say centering lives in Jesus Christ instead of on. I just would rather people be fully in than around or kind of on. I don't know, just me, okay? Just a suggestion or something to think about, okay? All right. Centering lives on Jesus Christ. So, hey, so, so see, what he's saying to the people is, what's missing with you people? You eat, but you're never filled. You work hard. You never seem to be satisfied. You're putting your money into a bag that's full of holes. It just The money just leaks out. You never seem to have enough. And you got to get more. Got to get more. And they might have been, some of them might have even been successful. But they weren't happy. Like some of you in the room might really be really successful, but there's something missing. There's a hole. Because what you're living is not satisfying, and God's just saying, mm, take your heart out and put it on the, lay it on the path. Where's your heart taking you? Consider your ways. Think about where you're headed. What's cool about it? Well, two things. If God thwarts your plans in life, is it because he doesn't like you or is it because he really loves you? Jason thinks it's both. He probably doesn't like me, but he does love me. No, I don't think God has a split personality. I think the bottom line is, folks, I think you were not made for here. You know, you were made for him and to be in relationship with him for all eternity. And there's a hunger and desire in your heart that will go. If it's unsatisfied, no matter what you do in this world, and it may even look successful on the outside, you will never feel it on the inside. Until he's priority one. And guess what? The people respond. Zerubbabel and Joshua the priest and the people, they leap to their feet and they immediately go to work. That's what's really surprising to me in the text. God speaks, but the people obeyed. They actually started doing exactly what God told them to do. They, they put together a team to go to Lebanon to begin to cut timber, and others began went down to where that foundation had been laid, and they began to clear things off and cut the vines that had overgrown it in 18 years, and they began to follow God. They began to rebuild, chapter 2. In the seventh month of the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came again. Desirable to Shittil, to the governor, to the high priest, and then to the remnant of the people comes again. Who, here's a question, who is left among you who saw the house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Hmm. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel. 
declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So they've encountered difficulty. The minute they start trying to do the will of God, see, now, a wise man once said to me, Henry Blackaby once said to me in person, he said, Dave, people talk about counting the cost to do the will of God. I'll tell you, not doing the will of God costs a whole lot more. When you don't do the will of God, it will cost you tremendously and deeply. But the people have started doing the will of God and immediately they're not encountering interference from God any longer, are there? But there is interference. Spiritual forces, the enemy is stirring up the the people, the Samaritans in the region, and they are attacking. They have not enough supplies. There are not enough materials for building. There's, they're encountering all kinds of difficulty in, in the midst of And they're only three weeks in. And God is reading their minds. Because they're saying to themselves, oh, man, this is going to be a dinky deal. This ain't going to be anything like David's in Solomon's temple. He's just reading their minds, and so he starts asking questions again. But then, look, look, look what he says. The message here is to encourage them to persevere. Keep doing what you're doing. Stay involved in my will. Keep putting first things first. And so here's, here's, here's why. He says three times, he says to each of them, governor, high priest, and people, he says, be strong. Be strong. Be strong. I don't think that's in their own strength. You know why? Because the next thing he's going to say to them is because I'm with you. <laughs> because you're not on your own. <laughs> you're, not, you're not left without resources or energy or what you, you will have what you need. But you've got, to, you've got to stay in the fight. You've got to be strong if you will. You know, Paul prayed for the Ephesian church in chapter three. He said, I pray this daily that God will strengthen you with might by his spirit in your inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of my love, my love which surpasses, surpasses knowledge. He says, now to him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above whatever we could dream about, ask or think. How? According to the power that is at work within us. So God is saying to these people, said, be strong. You see, when God says to you, hey, why are you getting discouraged here? You, you, you know what I told you to do. You, you understand my will, don't you? And be strong. Connect in my strength. Be strong. For I am with you. And then he says, fear not. We, we talked a little while back at Christmas time about there are 360 fear nots. 
We talked about the one that the uh, shepherds got out in the field when the angel said, fear not. Here's another one of the 365, one for every day of the year. Here's another, fear not. Do not be afraid. Don't be anxious. That's a good word. Okay. All right. We're about out of time. So I'm going to summarize the last two oracles for you. Okay. All right. So beginning, you know, uh, beginning then after God promises provision for them, he says, no, you don't worry about it. You keep doing what I called you to do and I will provide and, and in ways that you cannot imagine, I will shake heaven and earth to give you what you need. And I believe when, you know, he says all the nations, the treasure of all the nations are going to flow toward you, toward doing what I have called you to do. Don't worry. He says, down here, I've got cattle on a thousand hills, basically, like the Psalms. But he's, but he's saying to them, but I will not just shake the earth. I'm going to shake the heavens for you. There's going to be a shakeup in heaven. I think that's where the gospel comes in. What was the shakeup in heaven? What extraordinary thing happened? The glory of God came down, didn't it? In a person. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God shook up heaven. He's promising the people, don't you worry. I'm going to bring everything you need. And, and believe it or not, you see, Herod came along some decades later as a, a Roman governor of the region who was born Jew and Idumean, but he loved the feasts of the Jews and he, he spent literally what would have been millions and millions of dollars beautifying the temple, enlarged it, doubled its size. You know, it, it was a, the Jews who have taken this book out and read it later would have said, God did exactly what he said. Look at the glory and splendor of the of the temple now that Herod has invested so much in it. But there's a greater fulfillment, and that's what he shook heaven. He shook heaven, not just earth. You know, earth's no big deal. <laughs> but he shook heaven for you and I, and his glory came down. And so then there's two other oracles. And, and uh, here's the jest. He asked these two rhetorical questions of the priest. And, and, uh, and it's a little confusing if you weren't a priest or you didn't live in that day and time. But, but basically he's just saying, if you as a priest put in the fold of your garment, which there was a fold, every priest had that where they could place sacrificial offerings or meat in that fold to carry it to the altar so it would not touch anything else but he says if it does touch something else does it make what it touches you know like a, a barrel or a you know whatever a bowl of soup or whatever it is does it make that holy and the priest would go of course not it doesn't make it holy and then he asked the question in reverse you know but essentially what he's saying to you and I is is that this is what I would get from it he said he said now we do a lot of stuff that's religious don't we and we think that if we just do some religious stuff, then that'll kind of justify everything else we're doing. We can still kind of live our lives, right? And, and still be kind of considered holy. And, and Haggai's saying, no way. Uh, uh, no, you're, that's not, you're defiling what's holy. 
And, 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 and then we can, now can't we just rub shoulders with the world? You know, can't we just kind of be out there touching all the things that are in the world? And then we can just like show up for church and that won't contaminate it. And he says, oh, are you kidding me? No, you can't do that. And see the bottom line, what he's saying to the people is here's the problem. You're going through the motions. You, this is, you know, he speaks to him two months later. He says, you're going through the motions, but your heart is not in it. You're, do, you're building the temple. You're doing what I ask you to do, but I can see it in your faces. I can see it in, you know, I, I, can, I can look within and I, I don't, your heart is just not with me. Remember, you gotta, you gotta take your heart out and lay it on the road. And it's really what he's saying is, it, he says, I, I don't just want your hands, I want your heart. Because at the end of that next oracle, he says, now, you know, hey, be diligent. Get out there and work with your hands. Go back and, and plant seed. Go back and cut timber. Go back and work on the walls of the temple. Go back and do those things you were doing. But, but I, I want you to go. You must go back differently. You must go back with a whole heart. With a heart for me. So where's your heart? You know, you, you think you can just rub shoulders with the world and then just kind of come here on Sunday morning and, oh, everything's fine. Like it's no big deal, you know. Or do we need, before we come to this altar for communion today, do we need to say, God, do some business. I'm going to take my heart out and lay it on the path for a little while. I want you to show me where my heart is. Because you're going to mess up. You're going to, there are going to be failures, but God's going to look at your heart. And then the last oracle uh, is directed toward Zerubbabel, toward the governor, specifically to him to encourage him. And he, and he says to Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you a signet. You know, I'm going to make you like a signet ring, you know what I'm saying, uh, in, in to, to honor and to represent and to bring glory to me. And that's just a small little seal that was placed on a ring where a king could stamp a document. Uh, like it's a, and it's like he's saying to Zerubbabel, you know, Zerubbabel, you're going to be a small part of a very big story. A really big story. And, and the fulfillment of that comes 400 years later. Remember, after these post-exilic prophets, God goes silent for 400 years. And when God speaks again, the, the very first pages of the New Covenant, the New Testament, is a genealogy, Matthew's genealogy. And then you have in chapter 3 of Luke, you have Luke's genealogy. And they are two different, you, you, you are aware they're two different genealogies, aren't you? Matthew's genealogy traces the what would have been called the legal lineage of Jesus through Joseph, the father, who was supposed, Matthew says, the father of Jesus. It's the legal lineage that shows how, how this promised seed of Abraham and the seed of David, ancestor David, came through through Joseph. And the Luke version, the Luke genealogy, there are different names in there because, because it follows Mary's genealogy. They were both from the lineage and family of David, descendants of David. But when you take all those differences, 
you know, and you begin to go back, peel back, you know what I'm saying? They, they come to an intersection on one person right before it divides and goes its separate way to Joseph's family and Mary's family. There's one person who stands at the intersection and his name is Zerubbabel. He's just a small cog. He's just a signet. He's just a little bitty thing in a much bigger story. So Zerubbabel, stay faithful. All right, let's close. All right, so here's what I, want, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to take a moment, take out your heart and lay it on the path. Okay? I just want you to consider your ways for just a moment. So could we bow in prayer? And would you just do business now? I want you to realize something, you know. Um, we're going to do communion in, in, in just a few minutes. But, um, but as you finish with communion, if you need to stop and pray with someone, there'll be some folks over here holding candles that will pray with you, that will speak with you, that will let you talk about what God is saying to you. Because, listen, what you want to do today is you want to do what Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people did when they heard something from God. They obeyed immediately. That's what you want to do. So take out your heart and lay it on the path. Let's pray. Good Good Father, gracious, you come to us. Sometimes, as we've noted in these studies of the prophets, um, in what seemingly is a very harsh, condemning kind of way, and we deserve it because of deep sinful patterns in our life. And then times you come just asking gentle questions. And making us think like the counselor, like the paraclete who comes alongside the comforter. And my prayer, Father, is that in this moment that that's exactly what you're doing through your Holy Spirit in the lives of your people. And even if there's someone who is yet to give their heart wholeheartedly to you, I pray that you would come alongside in this moment. And and just do what only you can do. You alone have the power to accomplish in our lives what needs to be accomplished. And so you call us to be courageous, to be strong, knowing that you are with us. That as we're working and engaged, you are at work in ways that may be in imperceivable to us and God you say to us okay stop fearing don't be afraid take the next step of obedience make me priority one give me my rightful place so if there's anyone in this room that can't say you know, Jesus is Lord without the affirmation and confirmation that Paul talks about in, in 1 Corinthians and in, um, in, in chapter 12 of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that you would move us 
from the place where we are into your presence, into sweet communion and love and grace. That's our prayer. Amen.